Today, you know, we shall continue with our series of Nadema talks on wisdom, and we shall continue in particular from where we left off yesterday, namely the Vipassana Upakilesas, the imperfections or corruptions of insight. And uh, you may uh, remember that uh, these uh, imperfections of insight uh, occur during the tender phase of the fourth insight uh, knowledge and only after a meditator has uh, brought to maturity the third insight knowledge with its uh, three components of anicca, dukkha and anatta, namely the understand an intuitive understanding of impermanence, of unsatisfactoriness, and of uh, non-self. And these imperfections of uh, insight uh, mark uh, a very strong face in a a meditator's uh, meditation practice, and uh, usually they're considered as uh, quite uh, uh, rewarding and uh, even uh, inspiring. Now, uh, so far we have uh, dealt with uh, the imperfection of insight, of illumination, obasa in the Pali scriptural language, and then also uh, yesterday we uh, briefly dealt uh, with the second one being jnana in Pali, namely a sharp uh, and uh, then Um, keen, incisive, unerring knowledge. The third one consists of uh, what? Piti, yes indeed, joint rapture. And uh, this joint rapture may come in five different forms, namely as minor piti, then momentary joint rapture, then showering joint rapture, then uplifting joint rapture, and finally pervading joint rapture. And then we went on to explain the fourth imperfection of insight being tranquility, pasadi in the Pali scriptural language, which also is referred to in English as serenity, stillness of the mind, calmness of the mind, peacefulness, or simply just as peace. And this tranquility by far is more calm and quiet than the joy and rapture. And the fifth imperfection is that of happiness, sukha, and it covers experiences ranging from happiness to contentment, even gratitude may be there. There may be a sense of well, physical as well as mental well-being, a sense of ease, comfort, and on top of this, the body usually feels quite relaxed and is pretty free of pains and aches. Now, these are the first five imperfections of insight, and with regard to 
all of them. You know, there are you know, five dangers, and those you know, five potential dangers you know, come in the form of you know, craving for these wonderful you know, mental states. The second you know, one is you know, developing pride and certain conceit, mana in the Pali scripture language. So you know, one has uh, these fabulous, one experiences these you know, fabulous mental states, and certainly then one thinks highly of one's uh, own meditation practice, and uh, one might even start comparing one's own meditation practice with you know, that of uh, other meditators. And the you know, third, and uh, well, the third and uh, last potential you know, danger comes in the form of uh, you know, wrongful. Uh, belief or wrong view, you know, namely deity, mecha deity, and uh, one has uh, you know, these wonderful experiences and uh, then thinks you know, that uh, Nibbana has been attained. And uh, please don't uh, think uh, that uh, these potential dangers are you know, irrelevant but to some meditators, they are really uh, relevant. And to give you an example for the arising of uh, wrong view, once uh, a number of uh, years back, probably maybe two decades back, there was a meditator quite well known in this country who went to Burma to practice under the venerable Saito Pandita Bhivansa at the Mahasi Meditation Center. And since this person, um, well, was quite, or or, practiced, and uh, and then had, or came across these imperfections of insight, and since the person had uh, uh, had had a history of uh, well experimenting with uh, uh, hallucinogenic you know, drugs, you know, so for this particular reason, uh, the person and I don't definitely don't want to give the name away. Um, uh, uh, this person you know, then you know, had experiences in the meditation that were similar to drug-induced experiences. And this meditator then thought, well, this is really quite something. It's far out, and this must be it. This must be Nibbana, and there was no way that the Venerable Sadhu Pandita could talk the person out of this wrongful belief, and the person even decided to leave, uh, to leave the center, you know, thinking, okay, you know, what uh, had, had to be done had been done, and so the path of stream entry had been uh, gained, and so, you know, then the person you know, returned to uh, his uh, home country. And it was only many years later you know, that uh, you know, this uh, person in question realized you know, his uh, well, you know, his uh, wrong view or his mistake, and uh, you know, then uh, had to 
you know, meditate again intensively you know, to you know, then gain you know, the real uh, you know, peace of uh, Nibbana. And so um, these kind of cases do arise once in a while. Now, today we shall continue with these imperfections of insight and deal with the remaining five. And the number six is Adimokra in the Pani scripture language, which is frequently given as determined faith. And then the next one is Bhagaha, which is energy, strong energy. And then the next one is Upatana, which literally means assurance and which stands for mindfulness, strong mindfulness. And then number nine is Upeka, which refers to equanimity. And there's two kinds of equanimity mentioned here. And the last one is, the last imperfection is that of Nikanti, namely a subtle attachment. And it is Nikanti that is underlying all of the remaining nine. Now, um, some clarification is necessary with regard to Adi Mokha. Now, the Pali term Adi Mokha may be translated as a firm resolve, as sudden determination, or determined faith, as decision, as resolution. And it is one of the mental factors, and as mentioned in the Abhidhamma. And Venerable Nyanantiloka in his Buddhist dictionary points out that in later Pali literature, the term Adimokha then assumes the meaning of faith or conviction, so somewhat close to Sadda. However, the definition is different from somewhat different from faith, namely Sadda. And the Visuddhimagga defines this term as follows, namely in its 20th chapter, paragraph 118, resolution Adimokha is faith, for strong faith arises in the meditator in association with insight. So what we have here, a clear reference to the Vipassana practice, so it's a result of the Vipassana practice in the form of extreme confidence of consciousness and its certain concomitants. And the classical fourfold definition for Adimokha is as follows, namely, literally, the term Adimokha means the releasing of the mind onto a particular object, and because of this, it has been rendered as a decision or resolution. So something in the sense of, yes, this is it, this is what I want to do, or this is what I want to go for. And so, hence, the mind is then going in a particular direction. 
the characteristic of Adimoka is given as conviction and its function is not to grope. So not to grope in the, in the dark, not being able to come to a decision. And so there are activities like, for instance, our meditation practice. At first, one might have a divided opinion on it, whether it's really all that beneficial or not. But then, sooner or later, with more and more practice, and more holds or positive, inspiring experiences occurring, one then comes to a conclusion, yes, this is it, and this is what I want to continue to do in the future. And the manifestation of this animoka is as decisiveness, and so it then is the opposite of, for instance, skeptical doubt, uh, which is accompanied, gets accompanied by wavering, um, by wavering and certainly indecisiveness, a mind that is unable or, or unable you know, to come to a firm, you know, res- you know, firm decision you know, upon a particular question. Or let's say there's two or three options and you know, the mind is wavering between you know, these two or three options, uh, unable to settle for one of those options. Now, the Venerable Mahasi side of Myanmar in his two-volume work given in Burmese as Vipassana Shunijan, which literally translated into English means the manual of the way of the way of Vipassana practice. In this work, he defines Adhimokha as a very clear faith and confidence that arises together with or while well labeling and observing objects. And and the explanation that is given or that leads that the explanation for the arising of Adimoka is as follows. And it's actually a rather pragmatic explanation. Now, when a meditator has experienced mental states like illumination, avasa, or very sharp and keen knowledge, and then on top of this strong joint rapture, and furthermore, then some tranquility and some happiness. Naturally, this meditator will think, what? This practice is useless? (laughs) No, of course not. But rather, will be delighted with the practice since it is yielding such out or such unusual results. And 
um, because of these uh, wholesome mental states arising, like happiness, like tranquility and joy and so on, once faith in the practice, faith and confidence in the practice uh, arises. And over time, it uh, may then uh, increase uh, more and more. So it is usually based on these uh, wonderful experiences uh, that uh, a meditator uh, comes uh, to the conclusion, yes, indeed, what's uh, the Buddha or the Buddha himself existed and certainly his teachings are really profound and the Sangha is well, the community of noble persons and therefore well, very valuable. And furthermore, there'll be faith and confidence in the practice itself. And with this, a meditator comes to the resolution, yes, this is the correct practice, this is what I want to you know, continue to do, and so, you know, no matter what it uh, takes, uh, this I you know, shall you know, do. And so, you know, as a result of this, you know, one will then continue with one's meditation and even put in more effort uh, into one's practice than uh, before. Now, these are some of uh, you know, the you know, theoretical um, well aspects connected with adimokha, uh, resolution or you know, decision determined uh, faith. And so now, as for the practical uh, aspects. And so when a meditator experiences you know, this certain determined certain faith, then he or she is likely you know, to you know, behave in a you know, somewhat certain, well, different uh, manner, different from you know, usual. And so based on you know, all these wonderful experiences, one might you know, find you know, that this meditator is again and again you know, well, going over to the you know, administration you know, building where there is the you know, public telephone, and so, you know, then you know, the person you know, will engage in long telephone calls. Yeah, yeah, with one's uh, yeah, friends and uh, yeah, relatives, yeah, trying to convince them of uh, yeah, well yeah, the yeah, great benefits of the meditation practice, and uh, yeah, saying things like it's high time for you also to come and join yeah, yeah, this uh, yeah, retreat. Yeah, yeah, don't uh, yeah, don't miss it. Or. Uh, if it's uh, not uh, by you know, way of uh, telephone calls, well, a person might uh, these days uh, then uh, write and uh, send a number of uh, really convincing uh, emails uh, to friends and uh, relatives. And uh, if one isn't that uh, sophisticated, one uh, such a meditator uh, might uh, then. Uh, take uh, the fellow meditators as objects 
and uh, you know, maybe find oh one man you know, you know there's a particular meditator that seems to have you know, rather you know, shaky faith in you know, the practice and is kind of sluggish. So you know, one then you know, takes this as an opportunity you know, to you know, you know, <laughs> engage in some missionary activity. <laughs> and <laughs> on retreat. <laughs> and so, so you know, then you know, trying to explain you know, to the other person, well, if you were to you know, practice just a little bit harder, if you were just a little bit more continuous in your mindfulness, you would experience the same wonderful ex- you know, mental states uh, you know, just like I'm experiencing. And so, you know, then your faith would increase uh, you know, greatly and so, you know, then the world would so, you know, look uh, different. So please try it you know, harder. Something you know, along you know, this uh, line. Well, there are other meditators who are maybe not that extrovert and not of such a missionary type. And so they're more of an well, introvert type. And then you might discover them one day in the meditation hall and, well, in a very pious manner, you know, with extreme amount of mindfulness, bowing down you know, to you know, the Buddha statue here once, and then twice, and then thrice. Oh, and it doesn't end with three times. It goes on four times, five times, six times. And then when gazing at the Buddha statue, the tears may roll down <laughs> the cheek. <laughs> And so, so it might continue like this for quite a while. So as a meditation teacher, if one sees this one, should go and remind the person of, uh, uh, or ask the person what he or she is doing, and then maybe encourage the person to leave it with this many prostrations or bows to the Buddha. And so, at times, overwhelmed by a tremendous amount of faith, one might do things that certainly seem somewhat ridiculous to others. And and what do you think? Does manifestations of faith end with these certain cases here, or oh no, are you saying oh no? So then. To add a few more, there have been already a, a number of meditator, meditators sitting on the cushion and experiencing all these wonderful results of the Dhamma practice. And then they went off into planning their future Dhamma career. Once, once I get off this retreat, yeah, then I'll be heading straight back to my you know, family or you know, friends, and then I will give such and such a dhamma talk to this person, and another type of dhamma talk to another person, and so on and so forth. So some vision envision themselves already as great meditation teachers with well an international career. 
And <laughs> and so, so in all of these certain cases, one is certain well advised to recognize what is actually happening and so to be mindful of one's thoughts and activities and not to get carried away by determined faith. And so just like with the other imperfections of insight, in this case of determined faith, Adimokha, it's the same thing. Owing to much faith, one might crave for more more of it, or one might get somewhat proud of one's strong faith, or one might mistake it to one one may one might mistake one's faith to have become unshakable faith. And isn't it said of stream enters that they have gained unshakable faith? So then most likely the Dhamma has been gained. And this is unfortunately a wrong conclusion. And at this point, one's faith usually is not unshakable uh, as yet. So in all three uh, cases, uh, one uh, needs to be aware uh, and uh, label uh, the respective, label observe uh, the respective uh, danger, uh, which uh, then turns uh, this adimokha into an imperfection of uh, insight. Now, the next imperfection is certainly uh, that of pagaha. And uh, pagaha here is a synonym for viriya, for effort or energy. And it uh, describes a situation that uh, most uh, meditators uh, do experience when uh, they go through these imperfections of insight. Not too long ago, one was suffering from tremendous uh, uh, exhaustion, physical as well as mental, tiredness, uh, lethargy, lack of uh, driving power, and so on and so forth. And uh, when, back then, one couldn't imagine oneself you know, doing you know, this kind of intensive meditation practice for too much longer. However, fortunately, uh, Savya Sankara Anichati, all you know, condition formations are you know, uh, well, subject to impermanence, so they change. And so at this point in the practice, uh, one's sudden effort or one's energy uh, improves certainly uh, greatly. And uh, it seems as if uh, energy, as if one is overflowing uh, with uh, energy. And during this certain uh, phase of uh, one's meditation practice, one uh, needs to be careful uh, that one's uh, effort is uh, neither excessive nor 
uh, deficient, most and in particular not to be excessive. But uh, rather, uh, should it be a balanced type of uh, effort? Anyways, when more energy is available for it in practice, meditators find that naturally, all of a sudden, they can sit longer, longer than just the ordinary one hour. And at up to two hours, some meditators even up to two and a half or three hours. And so, you know, then you know, some meditators are also finding that in the evening hours, you know, all of a sudden you know, they experience a boost of energy and you know, they can you know, continue you know, with their practice until late into you know, the night, when previously this was something you know, totally impossible. And so, likewise, a meditator might find in the morning that at a rather early hour of the day, one wakes up and then is full of good energy, the mind is, or the body is well rested, and the mind is. Uh, refreshed and ready for another day of uh, intensive practice. So in these cases, one should make best use of uh, one's additional uh, energy for practice. And once in a while at a meditation center, there may be um, a meditator who has so much energy uh, available you know, that and he or she practices non-stop you know, without lying down, without suddenly sleeping for you know, 24 hours, 48 hours, and uh, on rarer occasions even more you know, than this. However, uh, it's not going to stay like this forever. This too you know, is a well, in, in permanent you know, condition, and so, you know, shortly after you know, this, a few days of practice down the road, um, uh, one may you know, find it you know, even difficult you know, to sit just for one hour. So the duration of one's certain you know, sittings you know, keeps certain you know, changing over time or in the course of one's meditation practice. And again, an unskilled meditator may, based on this strong energy, develop a craving for it once, may want more, more of it, or may get again very conceited and might compare himself or herself to other meditators and might think of himself or herself as superior to other meditators based on the length of one's sittings. And uh, this should be, uh, this kind of thinking should be immediately uh, checked. 
and likewise one based on much energy one might think oh well this must be uh, connected with uh, the experience of uh, Nibbana when in fact uh, it is not the case. And so the Visuddhimagga points out that this kind of effort or bhagaha is or arises in connection with the vipassana meditation practice. Now, which means which imperfection comes next, namely upatana which is uh, mindfulness, a strong uh, form of uh, mindfulness. And the mindfulness at this point in the practice is certainly characterized uh, by uh, being somewhat effortless and uh, on top of this rather dynamic, easy, and uh, uh, very swift and sharp and light and without missing uh, any object and without any delay is one uh, observing the predominant uh, object. So as soon as an object arises, the mind right away you know, goes uh, towards it. And so what happens at this point is that and Venerable Mahasisada explains this, that the mind seems to be going towards the object of observation and, um, and then in a similar manner, the objects of observation seem to be coming towards the observing mind. And so one doesn't have to exert much effort. The mindfulness comes naturally, easily. Now, based on such sharp and very quick and precise mindfulness, again, a meditator might be misled to think highly of his or her own practice and might develop a craving for this spectacular mindfulness or might then mistake the situation for an attainment of Nibbana when it's not the case. So one needs to be or one needs to exert certainly some um, discretion here. And usually what also happens you know, during um, or when mindfulness is very sharp is that it is pretty much in the present moment. And now, even if objects arise at great speed, one after another, the mindfulness can still cope with what is uh, happening. 
So one object after another is being or, or you know, the mind is paying attention to without missing any of them. Maybe on occasion the labeling will lag a little bit behind, but lab labeling is not the same thing as mindfulness. It is an aspect of perception, sanya. Now, next, we have as number nine, the, the imperfection of insight with you know, of insight that has to do with equanimity. And so this equanimity is of two kinds, namely equanimity in insight as number one, and number two is equanimity in adverting. And these are two slightly different cases. Now, by equanimity in insight, is certainly meant tattara majatatta, which is the technical term for equanimity as a mental factor. And literally, it means that state there in the middle. And it simply means neutrality in the investigation of formations. Now, when one first starts one's insight at the meditation, then there's usually a lot of partiality towards objects. So, liking, preferring the desirable objects and disliking the undesirable objects, wanting to get rid of the undesirable objects. And you know, this then you know, clearly shows you know, the absence of uh, equanimity. However, you know, after you know, a number of days of intensive you know, meditation practice and observation of you know, predominant objects, you know, a meditator you know, gets you know, the point that one has certain seen these certain same formations already many times. And so even the most fascinating formation in the end is just another physical and or mental object, and it comes and it goes, and that's all. So nothing to get excited about. And in the case of an undesirable object, nothing to get sad about. And hence, since one has observed the objects of the objective field already so many times beforehand, there will be neutrality in the investigation of formations. So this is the first type of equanimity that is being referred to here as the ninth imperfection of insight. And the next, the second aspect is given in the Pali scriptural language as awajana upeka. And this translates as equanimity in adverting in the mind door, which is a very particular case 
of observation. Now, as part of the cognitive fitness series, the mind is first in a state of bhavanga, which gets explained as the life continuum a rather passive state of consciousness. So the mind at that point is not active. And then once our consciousness comes out of that, there will be the so-called advertence consciousness. And it is a particular function of consciousness that adverts to one or the other you know, sense-store object. Now, um, as you know, there are you know, six certain you know, sense-doors, you know, starting with the eye-door, ear-door, you know, nose-door, tongue-door, body-door, and you know, the mind-door. And in order to recognize and then later on know a particular object, it is necessary that the mind adverts to one of the sense doors. And so idea, or in most cases, to the sense door where there is the most predominant object. So the object then draws one's attention. So, then we have objects occurring at uh, the material sense door, such as the eyes all the way up to the body, and so the body door. And then, as a different case, we have the mind door. And the mind door refers to that uh, place where mental uh, events or mental objects are you know, taking place. And uh, so advertence, equanimity in, advertent, in adverting in the mind door you know, then refers to this particular you know, function of uh, you know, consciousness to advert to an object and uh, here not one of the five material sense doors but rather uh, uh, adverting to the mind door. And this advertence to the mind door may happen in different ways. And you can imagine at the beginning of one's meditation practice, the mental or consciousness, the function of consciousness as uh, advertence may not be that skilled yet. However, over time this changes, and in particular you know, it changes with a growing familiarity you know, with formations, and as a result of this, you know, once adverting in the mind door you know, or any of the other you know, doors um, works as incisively and sharply as a lightning flash. So, extremely quickly. And 
So the object then no longer matters. The mind immediately will advert to the most predominant objects occurring. And so this is what is meant by avajana upeka. Now, when there is equanimity of uh, insight and then equanimity in adverting in the mind door, again, an uninformed uh, meditator might then crave for this wonderful equanimity or may get proud and conceited owing to its presence or may mistake this experience to be connected somewhat or somehow with Nibbana. Whereas a knowledgeable meditator will know the luring dangers and will immediately recognize each of them and and then will label and observe it accordingly and know its nature and sooner or later it will disappear. Now, these are the first nine imperfections of insight up to equanimity and these are said to be wholesome mental states by nature. However, in combination with these three dangers of craving, pride, and conceit, and wrong view, they become imperfections. The last imperfection of attachment, nikanti, is a form of greed, of loba, and a subtle form of loba, and is clearly unwholesome in uh, nature. And as mentioned earlier on in uh, the talk, uh, this nikanti or attachment uh, will underlie all of uh, the other uh, experiences. So in a subtle way, it certainly will uh, be present if uh, one is not uh, mindful. Now, when these uh, ten imperfections of insight uh, occur, naturally meditators are uh, delighted. Finally, things are uh, moving uh, in the right direction, so it certainly seems. And finally, uh, one feels uh, that one is doing uh, good uh, meditation practice. However, there is, uh, well, this constant danger of uh, um, getting lost in these imperfections and this then will lead to a stagnation in in one's meditation. Now, during an intensive Vipassana retreat, it is important to experience these uh, imperfections of uh, insight, at least a few of uh, those. And 
the psychological effect of you know, those you know, imperfections of insight is that having experienced them, one you know, feels encouraged or inspired to carry on with one's meditation practice. If early on you know, skeptical doubt and other difficult mental states came in and one was just about you know, ready to give up, then uh, at this point uh, it's uh, just the opposite and you know, thoughts of uh, you know, continuing will arise instead. And what the experience of these imperfections of insight also show is the potential of the mind. So if we keep developing the mind, then these wonderful mental states do arise and become accessible. And yet another important aspect is that of upika itself. The mental factor of equanimity or upika is present in the stream of consciousness of non-meditator the beginning meditator, however, it will be relatively weak and uh, still somewhat difficult you know, to you know, detect. But when one reaches this point in one's certain meditation practice, you know, then upeka comes into the foreground and uh, actually it uh, tends to be uh, or to become quite uh, predominant. With this, a meditator you know, thus gains a first uh, and uh, a very direct experience of what equanimity is all about. Previously, you know, one you know, didn't quite know, you know what this equanimity uh, or, or, or talk on equanimity you know, was about. Now, one can relate to it much better out of one's own uh, practice. And once one has certainly experienced it, then it will be easier to remind oneself of equanimity during one's daily life and especially in the context of some difficulties. Now, to elaborate a little bit on uh, equanimity, just uh, for you know, the sake of uh, you know, better understanding and general uh, knowledge, the Buddha has uh, compared it you know, to uh, a mountain of uh, rock. And in Dhammapada, in the Dhammapada, we find verse eighty-one, you know, where it says, "Selo yatta ekagarnya no." As a mountain of rock is unshaken by wind, so too the wise are unperturbed by blame or praise. And a mountain of rock 
you know, doesn't suddenly get angry when it's windy, doesn't get upset when you know, snow falls on it, nor does a mountain of rock well jubilate when it's sunny or gets depressed when it's rainy and foggy and rainy. Nor is a mountain of rock up in arms when the human, human beings throw all sorts of garbage on it. <laughs> I could say more than this, but I will not. <laughs> and so, so we should, when it comes to you know, the mind, be like this a very patient and very equanimous you know, mountain of uh, rock, not having any you know, preferences uh, you know, whatsoever. And life is full of opposing experiences, some pleasant, some unpleasant. Sometimes we gain, sometimes we lose. And and it is in the face of such pairs of opposites that we need to maintain equanimity as much as we can. The venerable Sadhu Pandita likes to give a different kind of illustration for this equanimity, namely that of a billikin or a tumbling kelly. Do you know what a tumbling kelly is? Huh? No, you don't know? Oh, this is amazing. And what about a billikin? You don't know, but you've all been no, no, no. you've all been young children, and you've played with various kinds of toys. Well, you know, there's a toy you know, that at the tip, at the top, is rather you know, you know, thin, and so, and then at the bottom, it's kind of uh, something shaped like this, like a drop of water. And you know, there's some weight you know, built into the bottom of it. And you know, then you know, on the outside, a face is you know, you know, painted onto it. And you tilt it to you know, one side. And what will it do? It will fall over? No, it will bounce right back into the center position. So this is what is meant by a tumbling kelly or a billikin. And as a meditator, we should be just like this tumbling kelly. Whenever affected by the vicissitudes or the ups and downs of life, we should always then you know, go back or, or come back into you know, the center, bounce you know, right back into you know, the center you know, position. And so this is easily said, but difficult to do, especially if one hasn't experienced equanimity yet, and also uh, even if one has experienced a little bit of uh, equanimity, yet one hasn't uh, developed it. 
So when equanimity occurs in our meditation practice, and then you know, sorry, we should study it and we should try to you know, develop it as much as possible. Now, some of the vicissitudes of life the Buddha has captured in four pairs of opposites, and these are given as laba and alaba in the Pali scripture language, namely gain and loss. And then the next pair is that of honor and dishonor, yasa and ayasa, or companionship and lack of companionship. And fame and disgrace would be another way of translating this. And then, furthermore, blame and praise, ninda and pasamsa, and finally, happiness, sukha and suffering or unsatisfactoriness, pain, dukkha. Now, these are the four pairs or the eight worldly conditions known in the Pani scripture language as the atalokra dhamma. And what do you think? Was the Buddha exempted from these or not? Uh, he was not exempted from them. And this is always useful to remember. So if you, if you yourself are having a hard time with one of these ups and downs of life, then simply remember that even the Buddha had to face these ups and downs. Uh, however, the Buddha managed to maintain equipoise or balance of mind. Now, it is a very common human reaction upon receiving something, especially some material item or even an immaterial item, especially something that we've been longing for. This is when when we feel happy or elated. And when we lose some material item, something that is precious to us, then we feel disheartened. Now, loss here does not cover only loss of material things, but it may also cover loss of near and dear ones. And so this may be very painful, especially when there's a lot of attachment to the person who is passing away or has just passed away. And so the human, the ordinary human reaction to this is that the one is overwhelmed by by this loss of a near or dear person and 
many people uh, will end up shedding bitter tears or many uh, tears. And the Buddha vouches or or, holds uh, that uh, there is a better way of responding, namely with equanimity, balance of mind. And one simply doesn't let these events of human existence affect the mind. Now, similar things go for the second pair of honor and dishonor or fame and disgrace. When we get honored in one way or another, then usually we like this. And when we get dishonored or we lose our grace, then this has... And negative or brings about a strong negative uh, reaction. And both of uh, these uh, feeling uh, feeling pleased and uh, being uh, well somewhat dissatisfied with uh, dishonor, uh, both of these are exhausting, tiring reactions of uh, the mind. And at the end, what is much better is to keep the mind right in the middle and to not allow it to be affected by neither by honor nor by dishonor or disgrace. Likewise, for blame and praise, usually human beings love to be praised and it may make their day and they smile upon receiving some praise and but then in the case of blame they feel terrible, downhearted, sad and so on and so forth. Now again now, both of these uh, reactions are you know, rather immature reactions and so, you know, the mind has the potential you know, for a better way of dealing you know, with this so, you know, blame and so, you know, praise. And so, you know, the better way you know, consists in simply being uh, mindful and, and in particular equanimous about uh, the whole thing. Now, in the meditation practice, a meditator will come across frequently uh, some pains and aches and uh, difficult uh, mental states. And uh, during, uh, well, during the beginning days uh, of uh, one's retreat, uh, this may seem like rather uh, rather difficult experience, challenging experience. And whereas uh, when pleasanter things uh, happen, uh, then uh, happiness is uh, there, a sense of well-being is there, uh, then uh, one feels uh, upbeat 
about one's certain meditation. So upbeat in the case of happiness and downbeat in the case of suffering or unsatisfactoriness. And so again, we know from our own meditation practice that these are not the only ways of a possible response. And the response and the equanimity response is far better than mind which remains right there in the middle. Now, just for the general understanding of what is meant by equanimity, synonyms for it would be words like detachment, impartiality, and then the zero point between extremes, such as craving and aversion, greed and hatred, and furthermore, terror and delight, and then the non-reactivity of the mind or the unshakability of the mind. Now, the equanimity that we are referring to is not the equanimity as a neutral feeling, but rather, well, tattaramajatata, neutrality of mind. And this particular equanimity should be clearly differentiated from indifference. And indifference and disinterestedness and these two, indifference and disinterestedness, they arise out of anyana, namely a lack of knowledge. And so they are, according to the commentary to the Dhamma Sangani, they are a false manifestation of loving kindness. Now, neutrality of mind, Tatra Majatata, is one of the 25 beautiful mental factors, Sobhana Chetasika, and more specifically, it is one of the 19 universal beautiful mental factors, Sobhana Sadharana. And this equanimity arises together with a limited kind or a number of wholesome consciousness, namely 59 kinds of wholesome consciousness. But it does not arise together with 30 kinds of unwholesome or functional consciousness. Now, 
the presence or absence of equanimity makes a huge difference when it comes to the mental composition and also when it comes to leading one's life. The the absence of equanimity usually means a lot of shakeability of the mind. The mind tends to be extremely volatile and rather rather sensitive and tender and immature. Whereas in the case of equanimity, we find that this goes along with strength of mind and, in particular, with a resilience of the mind. Resilience, there is a sense of spiritual stamina and spiritual resistance. So whatever the difficulties might be, the mind can easily face them and will not be affected by them. The Venerable Sadhupanita sometimes also likes to point out that when equanimity is predominant in the stream of consciousness or in the mind, then the mind has a so-called repelling power. Nothing will stick to it. So even if one gets blamed or verbally abused or harassed, it will not affect the mind too much. And in general terms, we can distinguish between two states of the mind, namely a state of mental health and a state of absence of health. Now, when there, the state of mental health could be, from a Buddhist Abhidhamma point of view, it could be defined as the presence of wholesome mental states such as equanimity, such as mindfulness, such as faith and confidence, wisdom, and so on and so forth. Whereas, in a state of absence of mental health would or could be defined as the absence of wholesome mental states and instead the presence of unwholesome mental states. So, in modern psychology, you know, there is a new branch which is known as positive psychology, which occupies itself with the investigation of wholesome mental states such as the happiness. And positive psychology does not concern itself with well difficult mental states such as sadness, depression, and worries, and various phobias, and so on and so forth. Now, maybe as a last point for tonight, there, uh, the Patisambhita Magra, the path of discrimination, distinguishes ten kinds of you know, equanimity, and so, you know, the 
most advanced certain form of equanimity is known as Chalang Upeka, and Cha means six, and Anga are the factors, and thus it is known as the six-factor equanimity. And now, the six-factored equanimity now, refers to what? The sense doors, yes, indeed, the six sense doors. And so, an arahant, so a holy one, is certainly said you know, to be complete with this certain six-factored certain equanimity. And no matter what kind of object may be arising at certain of the six sense doors, you know, an arahant will not, or an arahant's mind will not be shaken by the, uh, the respective uh, object. And instead, you know, will you know, remain you know, balanced, uh, strong, you know, equanimous. And so, uh, try to remain, try to develop equanimity you know, just towards one single you know, sense door, and you will see how difficult this already is, and then try to extend it to two sense doors, three, four, five, and six sense doors. So, it takes, uh, obviously, uh, lots of footner training you know, to you know, you know, develop this uh, six-factored uh, equanimity. Now, let me conclude today's uh, demo talk by you know, wishing that may all of you, you know, experience you know, the you know, imperfections of uh, insight, how it, and so may you you know, possess or may you have the wisdom to see you know, the dangers that are connected with those uh, imperfections. And so uh, may you uh, have the mindfulness you know, to you know, uh, well, um, observe uh, uh, the, uh, or to be, yeah, well, to be mindful to observe those imperfections without getting caught in you know, them. And so, uh, thus, May your practice then progress further and go beyond those ten imperfections. And then may your meditation practice develop more and more and may more and more equanimity arise. And eventually, with a well-balanced mind, and all the other necessary conditions present, may um, you realize within this very you know, retreat you know, the peace of uh, Nibbana. And this is it for today. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.